Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we are finishing up our income inequality arc with a special episode called The School to Prison Pipeline, or the working title that we have is We Have to Stop Putting Six-Year-Olds in Handcuffs. Oh, another lighthearted episode, hey? I can't wait. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So, like, let's just jump right in because, I mean... Why not? There's no sugarcoating this, right? Like it just, we have to talk about this. And if anybody is a parent or knows a parent, this affects kids in your school too. And this next generation of kids. So you got to pay attention. Yeah. So let's break it down. The phrase school to prison pipeline is one we hear all the time. But have you ever stopped to think about what it really means? And more importantly, who it really affects, especially if it doesn't affect you or your loved ones? And as you know, we're tackling election issues, and this very issue took center stage during the first round of the Democratic presidential debates this past July with Colorado (laughs) Senator (laughs) Michael Bennett stating, I believe you can draw a straight line from slavery through Jim Crow, through the banking and the redlining to the mass incarceration that we were talking about on this stage a few minutes ago. But he also says, do you know what other line I can draw? 88% of the people in our prisons dropped out of high school. Let's fix our school system and maybe we can fix the prison pipeline that we have. Now I got to jump in with a fact check there because much as I want to be like Colorado woot woot, he got it wrong. So he did say it was 88%, but according to a Bureau of Justice report from 2003, it was 68% of state prison inmates did not receive a high school diploma. And that same national report found out that about 41% of inmates in the nation's state and federal prisons and local jails had dropped out. Keep in mind, again, this is from 2003. This is like the report has not been updated since then, but this number does continue to be referenced by government. So it's, you know, 17 years old, but that's the data that we have. It still is a majority. So it's just not the number that Senator Bennett cited. Right. And most studies estimate the rate of incarcerated people who have not received a high school diploma at somewhere between 65% to 74%. So in other words, prison is replacing higher education for many students. And to kind of flip it, but give some context, if you look at Americans as a whole, about 88% of us have at least a high school diploma or a GED, at least as of 2015. If you, this number surprised me, but we've talked about it before, only about 33% of the American population has a college degree, and only 12% has an advanced degree, like a master's or a professional degree or a doctorate. So that's, you know, the overview of the United States education system. And so, you know, look at the numbers of the incarcerated population in high school diplomas in that context, too. Yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind when you look at the subset of our overall American population. So going back to the term school to prison pipeline, what does this really mean? A 2015 report by AJ Plus and the Marshall Project, which is a nonprofit news organization that focuses on the criminal justice system, summed up the school to prison pipeline as, quote, a term that describes how American kids get pushed out of public schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems, end quote. The pushout often starts with zero tolerance policies that result in harsh punishments like out of school suspensions. And there's extensive evidence linking student suspensions to worse long-term educational and life outcomes, which is what the executive director of the Education Trust of New York, Ian Rosenblum, told WBFO, which is a local New York NPR station. I mean, I remember kids getting suspended in high school. Do you remember that? Did that happen in your 
fancy private school. Kids did get suspended. We had kids who were asked to leave. There was no school to prison pipeline in the private school sector. Right. Yeah, I think money probably has something to do with that. But yes. Right. I mean, in public school, people got suspended sometimes for stupid stuff. I mean, we'll explore that more in the rest of this episode. But also, I don't even remember what the most serious infraction was in our high school. But you know, that's one thing for high schools. The crazy part that we're going to talk about, and I know that one thing we did in Colorado a few years ago was that there's a law now that says that children under third grade are not allowed to be suspended because chances are, the thinking goes, if a kid is that small and is behaving that poorly, by suspending them, taking them out of the school system, they're probably going to be sent back to an environment that's going to be teaching them kind of the same sort of stuff. It's not going to be teaching them better habits or allowing them to get the support they need to learn how to negotiate the school system in society and learn how to remain in control in school. So for young kids in Colorado, you can't get suspended before grade three, from what I understand. Yeah. And I think that that's really important because the effects of suspension don't just end when you're suspended, right? Not only do students miss instruction time when they get suspended, but the effects of that punishment compound throughout their educational career. So Ian Rosenblum, that same executive director, stated after a suspension, we could see that student is held to lower expectations, that that student is not given educational opportunity and support, and that that student is not given all of the educational opportunities that they need to succeed in school and beyond. So remember, it's not just that one act, it's everything that happens afterwards. And if you remember, we talked about that kid named Isaiah and his one bad decision in Mississippi, which has still kept him out of school even years after that happened. And if you don't know what I'm referencing, definitely go back and listen to that episode, which was in our criminal justice arc. Yeah, I mean, it's really because then not only are they either stereotyped by the teachers, but if they're suspended and that leads to something else, where do they jump back in? How do they jump back in? Who's responsible for catching them up? I mean, it's not just as easy as I missed a few days of school. Right, exactly. And we are continuing to sort of connect the dots between education and crime in that way. So according to Jill D'Angelo, who's an associate professor of criminal justice at SUNY Buffalo State, she says the one factor that we know, I sound like I'm in a courtroom, but beyond a shadow of a doubt, really, that reduces someone's likelihood of recidivism or getting involved in crime, period, is education, which is basically, so it's the flip side of that, right? If you, how to get people out of repeat offenses or anything along those lines or getting involved in crime to begin with starts with education. And continuing education, right? Not just ending that education. The Colorado senator was also right about how African-Americans and Latinos or Latinas are disproportionately caught up in the criminal justice system. Together, African-Americans and Hispanics or Latinos made up half of the U.S. prisoners in 2017, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, though they represent only a combined 32% of the general population. African-Americans are incarcerated at more than five times the rates of whites, according to the NAACP, and that racial disparity is reinforced by the school-to-prison pipeline. And keep in mind, I know we've said it before, it's not because black people and brown people are committing more crimes. Like There's this issue with our criminal justice system that is perpetuating that 
you know, not saying that people are innocent, but what I'm saying is they're punished disproportionately based on the color of their skin in many scenarios. So you can go back and listen to our criminal justice arc if you want to learn more about that. But let's look at one part of the country here as an example of what we're talking about. There was a conversation between New York State Senator Velmanette Montgomery and Jasmine Gripper, who is the legislative director and statewide education advocate for the Alliance for Quality Education. And they spoke to WCNY's Capitol Press Room last year about how students of color are disproportionately punished. What Senator Montgomery said was, it ends up being that you talk back or you don't listen or some other non-criminal behavior and you're just automatically tossed out of school. When a student is white, they're often met with a stern talking to or after school, some sort of punishment, but nothing that actually pushes them out of school. Gripper said, on the other hand, that black students are getting the most severe punishment, which is often some sort of long-term suspension. Gripper also laid out some of the main findings of that report from June of 2019 by AQE and the Public Policy and Education Fund of New York that sparked the Capitol Press Room interview. Like you just said, black students are five times more likely to be suspended than their white peers in New York City and four times more likely across the rest of the state. So it's interesting that mirroring the incarceration rates, the suspension rates in the schools here. So that was looking at New York City. Western New York is no exception. They looked at the 2016-2017 school year at the Buffalo public school system. And in that system, they suspended more than 30% of black male students, nearly one in three, which was according to a 2018 report called Stolen Time by the New York Equity Coalition. About one in five of all black students were suspended, compared to about one of every 12 white students. It really doesn't take much to imagine that this is unique to New York. Those disparities in how schools suspend students, immediate and lifelong impacts on the students who are suspended. And that's from Rosenblum, who carries on to say it's also really critical to note, though, that this is really a statewide challenge. And it's a challenge in all types of school districts. In suburban districts in Erie County, for example, black students represented just 5% of suburban enrollment, but more than 20% of the students who the schools suspended at least once. And I think this New York numbers are so telling because New York and New York City and then the cities outside of New York City in New York State, there is a huge range of diversity there. But you're still seeing very similar numbers, regardless of, you know, how many what that percentage of the student body is who's black, let's say. So I think that's fascinating and probably very reflective of what happens in all 50 states. Mm hmm. Experts say reducing suspensions must be a key part of disrupting the school-to-prison pipeline because research shows that being suspended just once in ninth grade doubles the likelihood that a student will drop out of high school, which I didn't know. Just one time in ninth grade, that doubles the likelihood that you won't finish high school. And high school dropouts are 47 times more likely to be incarcerated than their peers who complete a college degree, according to the AQE June 2019 report. Wow. Right. But that assistant professor of criminal justice, Ms. D'Angelo, said it's not fair to place all the blame on schools. It's obvious that it's there, she said, speaking of the pipeline. It's obvious that kids who don't finish schools are much more likely to get involved in delinquency and then, of course, become adult offenders. But how do we help the schools? We're blaming the schools, and it's not that they're not at fault, she continued. If we're not giving the schools the money and the resources and the training to enforce policies, create policies, and enforce them, then how can we blame them as much? She also said home life and parent involvement are critical to addressing student behavior and recidivism. 
However, just like there are many facets of this pipeline, the creation and the manifestation of this pipeline is also viewed differently. So going back to Rosenblum, that executive director, the reason the term is powerful and important is because it reinforces the incredible role of schools, he said about the term, the school to prison pipeline. It's also not an issue of how much money schools have to throw at the problem. In fact, that report, Stolen Time, found that wealthier school districts or low-need districts have the biggest racial disparities in suspension rates, which I thought was also fascinating. So rich schools are basically suspending more black kids. Yes. Is basically what they're saying. Okay. It's a combination of the expectations that a school district sets for itself and for its students and the support that the school district is able to bring to bear for things like restorative practices and for ensuring a safe and productive school culture with high expectations academically for all students, Rosenblum said. It's both. So what happens when we look at this on a much broader scale? And I'm sure no one out there is surprised, but the numbers don't change. And what they reveal shows a disparity that starts with race when it comes to this tragic pipeline. The Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention in the U.S. Department of Justice reports that more than 230,000 children aged 14 and under were arrested in 2017, although the office does not publicly report data broken down into smaller age groups. I mean, those are babies, but like, This is where it's really continues to get more disconcerting as a parent. The disproportionately harsh discipline that black children encounter often begins when children are literally in or just transitioning out of diapers. And I know we've talked about this before, but I don't think it can be overstated that we are not all starting out the same in this country. Data indicates that preschoolers, they're like two, three, four years old are expelled from their learning settings at three or four times the rate of children in grades K through 12, and that black preschoolers are more than three times as likely to be suspended than their white peers. I mean, suspension from preschool, I don't even know where to start with that one. What are you doing in preschools that you have to get suspended for? Like, I can't, my brain is kind of confused at this stage. But if you look at this early, early age and across the entire K through 12 continuum, black children are disproportionately the victims of exclusionary discipline. And yet there is no evidence. Let me emphasize that again. Zero evidence that black children have worse behavior than their peers. So it seems like it's not about the behavior. It's about the perception of the behavior in my interpretation of what I just sort of said. And there is research to indicate that when presented with identical behavioral records, teachers are more likely to rate the behavior of black children as more problematic and recommend harsher punishments. Studies have found that black children are also more often disciplined for subjective behaviors. So things like, oh, they were disrespectful, they were defiant. So those are like at the discretion of adult decision makers, teachers and administration. And in contrast to that, white children are more likely to be disciplined for objective offenses like they were caught smoking, they broke school policy, like very clear definitions. Yeah, I think that is why my husband is really big on reinforcing with our kids that they're going to have to be twice as good to be treated the same. And that's something we've heard. I mean, you've said this in the race panel conversations I've had here in Colorado, it has come up time and again, it's I've read it, you know, the reaction that what white people have, who are often the ones in power are often harsher for black kids. And they're seen as older or they're mis, you know, just based on the color of their skin, it's this different treatment that they're giving out, you know, whether it's conscious or unconscious, 
it's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think you see your kids, right? Or you can see if you're a different race, it's harder to see yourself, your kids in that kid. But what is so crucial is that is someone's kid. You know, those are my kids. Those are the kids who are not going to be treated the same. And that is so difficult for me as a parent to get my head around. And how as a parent, like, do you feel like you need to teach your kids' teachers a little bit about that perspective? Because your kids are in a predominantly white school. And as we learned, like, it's the wealthier schools that have that more sort of harsher difference for racial disparity. You know, what is the role of the parent in advocating for the child? Because the other part that sticks out for me in this conversation is that I think white parents, as is a totally broad statement, but tend to talk to their kids differently than black parents do. And some of the conversations that have come up is, Black parents really tell, they don't give their kids a choice. They must behave. They must obey authority. That's something that they're really taught from a young age because there is this disparity with how teachers will treat you, how police officers, when they stop you, will treat you. And kids are, that must be a really different, you know, there's none of this touchy-feely, how do you feel about it? No, you listen, you obey authority. So that must be really different with for you, especially because you weren't raised like that. I mean, I am always listening to what my kids say when they come home, because if there is a hint of anything, you better believe I will be in there like, oh, you know, can you make that sound again? That was the angel of justice sound, <laughs> by the way, P.S. Like me just like, you know, dropping myself into school, like what's up, which I will totally do. But, you know, every chance I get, I am in the classroom trying to educate about difference and and not just the kids, but, you know, the teachers are there when I'm, you know, reading a book or when I'm talking about stuff or when I get caught up in a Courier Knives discussion about how, yes, those Native Americans are probably upset that their land was being taken away, which in retrospect might not have been totally appropriate for second grade. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I think just being because I have the ability to be present in that way and to just make sure that if I need to insert myself, I will. But I want to also instill in my kids this knowledge that they need to, they should be proud of who they are, but there is a difference in how they will be treated. And just how to have them understand that as they get older is something that I still struggle with. And I can't answer this question. I don't even know if you can, but I do wonder how it feels for you to advocate for your sons versus if it was, you know, a black parent advocating for their black children, explaining that to white teachers. And how is that received differently? You know, I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, but all I know is that those are my kids. I am their mother. And my role is to make sure that they, you know, are good humans and will grow up to be good adults. And I want to make sure they grow up to be good adults. So all of that, as a mother, I don't think you can, that can't be a race thing. My experiences are different, for sure. So am I going to know what it's like to be a black boy or black man? No. And that's why I'm so thankful I have, you know, my husband to help, you know, my kids with that. But yeah, in terms of advocating for my kids, I would advocate regardless. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents, if they can, they would want to as well. So I think that's great. And just to clarify, if you're a new listener to this episode, Misasha and I are both half Japanese, half white. And uh, my kids present as white because I married a white Canadian man, but your kids present as black because your husband is 
a black man. Yes. So yes, that's probably a very important background. If the <laughs> otherwise, this conversation won't make any sense at all. <laughs> so right. Thank you. <laughs> All right, going back to the school to prison pipeline, we've seen consent decrees, which is a legal term. So just breaking it down, it's consent decree is basically an agreement or a settlement between a party in which you're not admitting liability or guilt. You're just sort of making it go away, but you're not saying like, oh, yeah, I was wrong here. And that has happened between the U.S. Department of Justice and communities due to the disparity in school discipline, you know, cases in which black children are disciplined more harshly and more often are subject to longer suspensions than their white peers for similar behaviors, even when the children were at the same school of the same age and had similar disciplinary histories. So clearly this is out there. Communities are aware of it. Department of Justice is aware of it, but it's not that it's going away. They can sort of slide it under the rug in some ways. And I think it's important to realize that it's happening so often, because I think we see, certainly in our community, the local paper will pop up, be like, kid was arrested, you know, at age seven, thrown in handcuffs. And you're like, wow, that's this isolated one-time incident. And it's really not. It's happening a lot all across this country. Yeah. And the racial disproportionality in school expulsion looks remarkably similar to the disproportionality in imprisonment rates. Federal data from 2014 indicates that Black children made up 33% of all children suspended, while a recent Pew Research Center analysis found that Black adults make up 33% of the total prison population. Again, they're not 33% of our population as a country. So it is disproportionately higher to the number of people that are in this country. Right. And you have to think that these men and women are in prison, not solely due to a broken criminal justice system. I mean, yes, but also to a society that continuously criminalizes children for being children if their skin color happens to be black or brown. So, you know, based on everything we've just discussed, this school to prison pipeline is alive and well, and it starts clearly in early childhood. And, you know, if we go back in administration, the Obama administration had done a fairly extensive amount of work on school discipline and the Departments of Education and Health and Human Services had joined forces to release the first policy statement to address exclusionary discipline in early learning settings. The Obama administration worked with Congress to secure more funding for early childhood mental health support. The Departments of Justice and Education came together to issue guidance on school discipline reform. They brought together school leaders from around the country to share best practices. But it wasn't enough to just say that students shouldn't be expelled. You know, the administration had to go out there and basically say that they shouldn't be arrested either, which you'd think is kind of a no-brainer. But an astounding 33 states don't have a minimum age for criminal liability. So that means it's legal to prosecute a five-year-old in juvenile court. If there's no minimum age, right, You that means any age can be prosecuted. In the states that do have minimums, the policies are barely better. South Carolina, for example, has a minimum age. It is six. In another five states, the age is seven. That means your second grader can be prosecuted in juvenile court. For what? Like, I mean, okay, you know what? If you killed somebody, I get it. I don't think we're talking about that right now. We're talking about he threw a pencil at my head. He threw a dodgeball at me and it hurt me. Like there have been cases like this where kids are arrested for playing on the playground. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's the really important question that we have to ask. Why are they being arrested? Why are they being prosecuted? And does that really fit what they did? You know, because we have discussed how kids make mistakes. Kids do stupid things. 
But does that punishment fit what they've done? And does it vary based on their skin color? Right. And does it, more importantly, teach anybody a lesson? Or is it just arbitrary punishment for the sake of a knee-jerk reaction and that makes me feel better? Versus, let's teach you, dear child, not to do this again. How can we teach the children because they're children. They're meant to learn for so many more years. They're not adults yet. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, in preparation and this, the Obama administration, you know, the part that I just talked about, I had read this article in preparation for this episode from two Obama era administrators who were talking about all of the work that had been done that is now sort of being undone when we look at how the school to prison pipeline has not gotten better and how all of these departments working together or trying to get them to talk to each other and work together to support our children sort of fell apart. But in a promising move and back to New York once more, New York City recently updated a Giuliani era policy that gave police officers the ability to arrest any child for any behavior with a new policy that says police officers should not arrest children for, quote, low-level offenses, such as spitting or disorderly conduct. Can you imagine, P.S., like you're arresting a kid for spitting? Anyway, and that school officials should not call law enforcement for code of conduct violations like tardiness or dress code violations. This policy change is part of a more comprehensive effort by the mayor to curb the school-to-prison pipeline and to reform school discipline in the city. I'm really excited to talk with Dr. Phil Goff, who heads up the Center for Policing Equity. And we're going to talk to him pretty soon about this, but because he's really looking at systemic change and addressing racism in measurable means by measuring the behaviors like this. So dear listeners, subscribe to our show because you don't want to miss that episode when it comes live. And we'll dig into some of what's happening in this country, in this realm. But like, really, they had to make a law that says don't call the police for kids being tardy. Like, yeah, I'm still surprised. Right. Okay. Well then just wait, because this next part gets worse. And before we were recording this, I was telling you, Sarah, how I write some of these, like when I'm at my older son's piano lesson and this part I was writing. And I think the people at the desk were like, she, something is going wrong over there because I was so viscerally angry when I'm, you know, just banging on my keyboard. So anyway, then, you know, if that's, wasn't the Giuliani era law wasn't bad enough, we are also reminded of how there are kindergartners in Florida who have been put in handcuffs. Let's not forget the girl who was handcuffed, who was white with a disability earlier this year, or at the time of this recording, just a couple days prior, a seven-year-old boy who was restrained in zip tie handcuffs before being arrested and taken to a mental institution, all because he suffers from severe anxiety and a mental disorder and had a meltdown in class. I kind of want to vomit in my mouth right now. Like, think about somebody who has a mental disorder or anxiety. They're so many kids with anxiety in this country, in case you didn't notice, like the rates of suicide or spike, there's just a lot going on with mental health and children in this country right now. And to have something upset a child who is struggling to hold it together and to be arrested and thrown into an institution because of a meltdown in class, my heart is going out to him and his family right now. How do you, you can never undo the impact of having to experience something like that as a young child. That is a formative experience that he will now have in his memory for the rest of his life. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. 
I'm 100% with you. But it doesn't stop there. Or for older kids, there's the one where the 14-year-old boy was kicking an orange as a makeshift soccer ball during lunch recess, which I have seen my own kids do, you know, what seems like a million times, which got him probation in Riverside County, California. He actually was the plaintiff in a lawsuit that pushed the county to treat kids like kids. And I know that is groundbreaking as a concept. But Riverside County did actually reform how they they dealt with probation and kids in schools. But if you Google this lawsuit, it is astounding. I mean, you know, when it comes to small children, young children, age seven, whatever, there's something about they're still tiny. They're literally little people that adults, generally speaking, are bigger than. And I can get where, you know, maybe for children who are six two, like bigger than the teachers, viscerally, I can see where people, teachers are a little bit more afraid. But again, it's a systemic thing. And it doesn't mean that they need to be like, we don't need to be so fearful that we're calling cops on people who are still children just because they are bigger. But I can see where adults are really fearful nowadays and are making this happen. So I like that there's policy starting, like thinking about it at least, or lawsuits that are thinking about it. But yes, well, kind of, because these incidents, you know, in Florida and California, and the California incident was one prior to, it's a while back now, but, you know, those shake and shock all of us, but are less surprising given the Trump and DeVos agenda to shift away from addressing the school to prison pipeline. So remember? Oh, you said DeVos, you love her so much. Mm -hmm. I do. She is my favorite, you know, up there with Jeff Sessions. Last December, the Trump administration rescinded Obama-era school discipline guidance, misleadingly citing school safety concerns. This effort came after the U.S. Department of Education made clear that civil rights enforcement isn't a priority. So remember all that stuff that we talked about, you know, the Departments of Justice and Education working together under the Obama administration, gone. Ouch. So they're going backwards in terms of... Addressing the school-to-prison pipeline, yes. So the president's budget asked for a decrease in funding for civil rights enforcement. So in just the first two years of the Trump administration, the Office for Civil Rights saw a 12.5% drop in full-time employees. So if you see a drop in employees, that means you have less people there to enforce civil rights. The Education Department also instituted a new protocol for reviewing cases that resulted in the dismissal of hundreds of potentially serious complaints and made the policy decision to avoid looking at systemic issues and biases surrounding complaints. So we're putting blinders on. Right. And in its latest move, the Education Department has proposed to reduce and fundamentally change the civil rights data collection. Most concerning is its proposal to stop collecting preschooler enrollment data by race, which would significantly hinder everyone's ability to assess access to opportunity for our nation's youngest learners. Because I think as we all have come to understand, it is much easier to hide facts than to deal with them. Wow. So basically... Because we talk about how important preschool is and, you know, the Head Start and all these programs that are trying to get preschoolers into education because it's proven to be so beneficial. And if we hide the race data, we can't tell if, you know, it's only white kids in preschool now and there are brown kids who are not like, wow, wow, that's great. That's real great. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does continue this fairly obvious strategy 
you know, between Trump and DeVos about ignoring racial disparities and continuing to perpetuate policies that have a disproportionately negative effect on students of color. And I think we have discussed the facts that support this data. These backward policies don't make schools safer. How They do, however, enable and even encourage the types of incidents that we just discussed that have six and seven-year-olds in handcuffs. So how do we protect more first and second graders from being criminalized? Well, let's start with the government at all levels, because states and early childhood systems should ban expulsions and suspensions from the early years through the early grades and significantly limit such punishments in the upper grades. Kicking preschoolers out of school does the exact opposite of what early education purports to do, which is to prepare children for school. And keep in mind, these kids are growing up in our society. They will be our next generation of voters, of people who work, who will serve us or be our bosses, all the things. These are not just stats on paper. They are human beings that we're talking about who are participating in our society, whether you like it or not. So how do you want them to participate? But going back to the federal government, what we were saying was that government and states should really get serious about funding interventions that support social and emotional development, like early childhood mental health consultations and positive behavioral interventions and supports, both of which have been proven to reduce exclusionary discipline. And there's a couple of subtle like divisions in this here, or well, maybe not subtle, but to address the specific issue of racial disparities in discipline, schools, districts, and states kind of have to pay attention to the biases that fuel them from, you know, the implicit bias at the individual teacher level to administrator or school resource officer level to systemic biases in policies and funding. And as certain Obama-era administrators found, one of the most powerful tools to identify and address biases at the systemic level is disaggregated data, the stuff that we're looking to not track anymore, basically. The first publication of preschool suspension data released by the Educational Department in 2014 was the one that prompted policy change at the federal, state, and local levels. And since then, over 30 states have passed legislation on the issue. So we need the data. On the criminal justice side, states should probably raise the minimum age for criminal liability. You know, we get that some reforms are complicated, but this one really shouldn't be. Funding should prioritize school counselors over school resource officers. In general, school resource officers should be better trained and specifically prohibited from addressing in-school conduct that doesn't risk serious injury to students or staff. And very young children should never be arrested or otherwise introduced to the juvenile justice system. And I think all of those are so important and address different parts of the school to prison pipeline. But also as a lawyer, I want to know and I really want to think about what can the courts and what can attorneys do to stop the school to prison pipeline? Because even with all of those, you still need the courts and attorneys to also move towards a better understanding of change here. And the American Bar Association, which is sort of the leading national organization of attorneys, had put together, had brought the judiciary, the defense bar, and the prosecution. So basically everyone, all sides that you see on Law & Order, came together to share pipeline-busting successes during a panel discussion a couple of years ago in San Francisco called How Courts and Counsel Can Stem the School-to-Prison Pipeline. And Overall, their solution to this disturbing trend was youth diversion programs, which have lowered both the number of juvenile crimes and referrals to juvenile court, according to panelists. 
And in particular, there were three different panelists who had each represented youth programs considered national models, and they shared how they've been able to deter schools from referring students to law enforcement for fairly routine matters involving bad behavior and other minor offenses. So we're going to talk about a couple here. First of all, Philadelphia. So Kevin Bethel retired in 2016 as a deputy police commissioner for Philadelphia, where he oversaw the school police. He said over time he became concerned about the trauma that arrests cause young people. Bethel said that one day while reviewing data on the high number of school arrests, he told himself that he couldn't do it anymore. From that point, with the support of the police commissioner in Philadelphia, he said that Philadelphia would change forever how its police officers deal with at-risk school children. Having visited the homes of the youth that he crossed paths with, Bethel knew something other than arrest was needed, and he believed that the children needed to be diverted to social service programs. Before he took any action, schools in Philadelphia had zero tolerance policies and installed metal detectors at entrances, which did little to reduce the excessive number of arrests. That's not surprising, I suppose. Bethel helped to institute unarmed school officers in 2014 who are trained to do everything sworn police officers would do in similar situations involving troubled youth. And if needed, the officers could call for backup. These new measures required collaboration, which you know, is so key with the school district of Philadelphia, the Department of Human Services and other youth agencies in the city to develop what is now known as the Philadelphia Police School Diversion Program. Bethel said that the four-year-old program successfully diverts first-time offenders on school property into community support services, keeping these youth in school and out of court. So a system that used to lock up close to 1,600 children is down to 250 arrests in 2017, according to Bethel, which is kind of an amazing change over time. He said they've re-engaged law enforcement to think differently about offenses. We can do policing, but we can do this type of diversion work, too, to give kids another chance, he added. So I thought that was great about Philadelphia. And then San Francisco came along and Catherine Miller, the chief of programs and initiatives for the office of the retiring district attorney for San Francisco at the time, said that the city had a circle of care or in other words, programs that find ways to wrap their arms around children. Police bring arrested youth to the city's community assessment and resource center instead of juvenile hall where they are connected to a case manager as well as a mentor who personally guides them through probation and into a youth intervention program. Miller said that another diversion program called Make It Right Restorative Community Conferencing is a volunteer-based program that features a face-to-face session among the victim, the youth, and supporters. The outcome is a plan to address the harm caused and case management support. We've seen really amazing differences for recidivism for the kids who go through Make It Right and the kids who go through the traditional process, Miller said. Although San Francisco is just 5.5% African-American, she said that more than half of the children referred through the two programs are African-American, right? The disparity is tremendous here, she said. And at the time of this conference in 2017, there was a newly developed pilot program called San Francisco Shared Youth Database, which was launching and was designed to link youth data from various agencies to reduce duplication, aid research, support case plans, and identify prevention and intervention opportunities. Millard said that this program will help agencies figure out how to do a better job for those families, which is really important. That's the other piece that everyone was talking about. That makes a lot of its families, right? Kids affect the whole family. Yeah. And I thought that this last state was actually very interesting, too, because it's Georgia. And we often think about, you know, the South as a block of red states, basically. But Georgia 
And in this particular case, the chief presiding judge, Stephen Teske of the Juvenile and Family Court in Jonesboro, Georgia, believes that the court have a role to play in dismantling the school to prison pipeline. He said that since his county started reforms nearly 15 years ago, they have seen an 82 percent decline in juvenile arrests. Right. So and I think this is interesting because he's coming at it from a presiding judge's perspective. And so he says, although he believes youth should be held accountable, he also wants defense attorneys to more carefully explore the question, is this child truly delinquent? The judge said more thought should be given to adolescent brain research, which would help the court decide if the actions are, quote, really criminal. Teske brought together stakeholders in his community, including police, educators, social services, parents, students, mental health counselors, the church, and civic organizations to design an alternative program for youth being charged with low-level offenses. The combined efforts have resulted in this team of providers responding to status offense referrals from the schools and agencies before a petition is filed in juvenile court. The outcome has been fewer referrals to juvenile court and an improved graduation rate. And he says that these types of diversion programs are contagious. He believes also that prosecutors are wasting their time on misdemeanors when they have more complex cases that could compromise public safety. He said it's about being smart. That is very hopeful because it indicates there is a path forward. But the question remains, especially given what you said about our current administration, are we really pushing that agenda? We think it's time we examine the full context of the school-to-prison pipeline and close the cracks that have been intentionally made to trap black and brown children. We cannot let policies designed to disparately affect children from infancy to adulthood exist if they are fundamentally based on the wrongs of decades past. I mean, we love history, you in particular, Misasha, but we know that those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it or worse. What if we let children learn, let educators teach, and let mental health professionals support both children and teachers? And let's make it clear to police officers that they will not be police officers for long if they arrest another six or seven-year-old. Stay tuned for our next episode where we will explore just that issue with the renowned expert I mentioned before. And in the interim, please get to know what your school or your school district does with regard to discipline in schools. If you don't know the policies, you cannot question or support them after all. Share this, by the way, with your school district, this episode, any of your administrators, if you know people in there, just send them a link to this and let's see what they have to say. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 